Our text this morning is in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 31 through verse 35. And it's my joy to come before you once again and minister the Spirit of God through the Word of God to you. Before we examine the text this morning, I want us to think about the issue of pride, because ultimately this is what we will see in our text. Pride is a deadly sin. It is one of the most deceitful of all sins. It is so deceitful that some of you right now are thinking, boy, I hope so-and-so hears this without saying, God, thank you for what you were about to say, for indeed, this particular weed grows faster and greater in the garden of my heart than anything else. In fact, its root tends to choke out all of the other desired plants of virtue. And God, by your grace, I pray that you will be merciful to me this morning And grant me the humility to be able to see my pride and pull it out by its roots. That needs to be our prayer. In Proverbs 16, verse 5, we read, Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. In fact, it was pride that condemned the devil, you will recall. For this very reason, we are warned not to put a novice in a position of church leadership Lest, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3, 6, being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Pride is a characteristic of the world that all believers must battle. For all that is in the world, according to 1 John 2, 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but of the world. In Proverbs 26, verse 12, the question is asked, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? And then the Spirit of God tells us there is more hope for a fool than for him. As we study Scripture, we see that pride causes even believers to despise authority, to resent correction, to harden the heart. It is the besetting sin of the wealthy and the powerful. Scripture tells us that pride leads people to contempt and even rejection of God's word and even rejection of those who minister it. Pride causes us to persecute the poor, to stir up strife and contention in a church. And ultimately, the Bible says that it leads to self-deception. Pretty bad weed, isn't it? Ultimately, the deadly fruit of pride, according to Scripture, leads to shame, debasement, and destruction. And those guilty of it, according to Scripture, shall be abased. As we read in 1 Peter 5, For God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Indeed, according to Proverbs 16, in verse 18, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is the very opposite of Christ-likeness. In fact, it can be characterized in 1 Corinthians 13.1 
and following by looking at the opposite of love. You remember 1 Corinthians 13 is the many times called the love chapter. And pride is the opposite of selfless, sacrificial love. In fact, beginning in 1 Corinthians 13, basically tells us that if we do not humble ourselves in love, we have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Think of it this way. Nobody can stand the obnoxious noises that a proud person makes. The text goes on to say that love is patient. The contrast of that is pride is impatient. Love is kind, but pride will be critical and overbearing and rude. Love is not jealous. Oh, but pride is. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, but not so with pride. Love does not seek its own, but pride will demand it. Love is not easily provoked, but pride is always a raw wound. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. But dear friends, pride keeps score and never forgets. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Yet pride loves juicy gossip and will spin the truth to its own advantage. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But pride bears nothing, believes nothing that is true, sees the worst in everything, and tolerates nothing. Now, beloved, if you failed to see yourself in this list that I just went through, there is only one reason. You guessed it. It's because of your pride. And what is amazing is that we as believers, saved by grace alone, are of all people least deserving of any accolades of praise. When you stop and think about it, our boast is in the Lord. It's not in us. And this is at the very heart of the gospel of grace. When we understand that it was God who chose us through his glorious elective purposes and that we did not choose him. When you truly understand that, all conceit evaporates. I remind you of the Apostle Paul that tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, that great text in verses 26 and following. He says, for consider your calling, brethren, the calling referring to that elective call of God upon our salvation. Consider your calling, brethren. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and so on. And at the very close of that text, he says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Ah, but that that cursed weed of pride. And that prickly group of thorns that tends to grow off of that weed. The thorns of, of defensiveness and the roots that spread through the gardens of our heart. Roots of divisiveness. Ultimately producing the, the toxic fruits of, of anger and contempt and gossip and slander and rebellion. 
Now, while the sin of pride can manifest itself in many different ways, perhaps one of the most deadly forms of pride is the most subtle, and that is the sin of being overconfident. And this is what we're going to see here this morning. Today's text is a graphic illustration of this. And also, the Holy Spirit of God in the text before us will help us see how the precious Lord Jesus was demonstrating his love for his disciples in preparing them with a heart of humility so that they could begin to understand how important it will be for them to depend solely upon the power of God in order to survive all that was about to happen. Things that they could not even really imagine, much less understand. And of course, eventually the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, would come and indwell them and help them with their pride and their humility as he does with all of us. But beyond that, to help us get through those very, very difficult times in life. Because they are going to need humility that would help them cling to the, to the unseen hand of God. As a child would cling to the hand of a father during a time of great danger. Because you will recall now they are used to walking with Jesus. They're used to having the son of the living God right there with them. You know, it's it's easy to be bold when Jesus is standing right here. You know, here's my champion. You know, it reminds me of of the little guy that always wants to pick a fight as long as the great big guy is standing right behind him. But soon the Lord Jesus will depart. He is about to die. He's about to leave. And this will leave them in a terrifying state, a debilitating state, a cowering fear will will now consume them. And yet their pride, as you are about to see, will cause them to think that somehow this is not going to happen to them. So like a loving parent that sometimes allows a self-confident, overconfident child to experience some opportunity for failure, to teach a lesson, the Lord Jesus now is about to allow his disciples to fail so that they could begin to understand the depths of their pride and the need for a humble dependence upon a power far greater than themselves. Having said that, let's read the text here together. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 31. Follow along as I read here. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, too. As I have lived with this text over the past several weeks, thinking about what the Spirit of God 
would share with us through it. I believe it can best be understood by breaking it down into three categories, three thoughts that help us understand Peter's pride, the pride of the disciples and all that the Lord is trying to teach them and therefore us. So I would have us look this morning at three sinful predispositions within the heart of pride, within each of our hearts. And you're going to find yourself here as I did me. And each of these three sinful predispositions of pride tend to follow a rather predictable progression. First of all, we're going to see how pride causes us to selectively hear the truth. Secondly, we selectively interpret the truth. And thirdly, we find ourselves with a settled conviction of a lie. Selective hearing of truth, selective interpretation of truth, and a settled conviction of a lie. And you're going to see this, how it plays out in this text and some others. And unless your pride gets the best of you, you will see how it plays out in your life as well. First of all, notice the selective hearing of the truth. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Three amazing statements here. You will fall away. In the original language, the term is scandalizo. It's, uh, we get our word scandal from that. And it was used originally to describe, to describe a, a, a bait stick in a trap. And it was also used to describe a stumbling block. And here it is used metaphorically to signify that because of the Lord Jesus, the disciples now are going to get tripped up. They're they're, they're going to fall away. They're, They're going to get trapped. He says, you will all stumble because of me this night. That's the idea here. And not only is he saying that, he's saying that the shepherd is going to be struck down. By the way, this is now the third time that Jesus has mentioned to the disciples that he is going to die. All right, the third time here, at least. And he's also telling them that, um, uh, that the sheep are going to be scattered. And then, and then the third major concept here in, in this text is that he's going to be raised from the dead. There's going to be a resurrection. But what did Peter hear out of all of that with his selective hearing? Well, verse 33 answers that. Peter answers and says to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, think about this. There's no response here to Jesus' death. There's no request here for clarification regarding his resurrection. There's no thought of saying, Lord, stop, stop. Help me understand what you just said, what you just said. Instead, he's saying, oh, not me, maybe them, but not me. Now, why the selective hearing? Well, you've got to remember the context here. Remember that previously now they have been arguing still about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. In fact, in Luke 22, verse 24, we read about the dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And this was happening now just a few hours earlier at the Last Supper. And you will recall that it was probably then that Jesus shocked them by washing their feet that stunning object lesson that, that no doubt mortified the disciples. 
You know, they were caught in the act of their pride. And now they see the son of the living God washing their feet. And so perhaps Jesus rebuke upon their lives, upon their pride, is now ringing in Peter's conscience. And no doubt Peter is still feeling the sting of the Lord's lash upon his conscience, but still filled with pride. He, he now he's got he's got to somehow save face with the Lord and, and, and all of the others. And so with his selective hearing, all that he hears is is that somebody might fall away and it's like, whoa, not me. I will never do that. They might, but I won't. You may be the sovereign God of the universe. You, you may be totally omniscient. And yes, you, you may be getting ready to be murdered and, and be raised from the dead. But what's important here right now is for you to understand that I'm not like the other guys and you've got it wrong. I will never fall away. Selective hearing. Selective reasoning. This is pride. Peter heard what he wanted to hear to gain what he wanted to gain. And that is the praise from the Lord and the praise from the other guys. Sound familiar? You're wrong. I'm right. You don't understand. Lord, I'm special. I'm different. I'm not like the others. And ultimately what he's saying is I'm more concerned about my reputation, my ego, than even your death, Lord, and your resurrection. Dear friends, the unmitigated gall of pride and to think that he couldn't see it. Think how different it would have been if he had set his ego aside and humbled himself before the word of the Lord that he heard and said, Lord, Stop a second. This breaks my heart. You, you, you have just said that you're going to be murdered. This is now the third time you've said this. And, 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 and worse yet, you're telling us that, that we, that, that, that all of us are, are going to fall away from you? That, that somehow we're going to abandon the one that we love? And, and then, Lord, you're talking about this resurrection? This is too much for me to conceive. Lord, help me. I'm desperate. But pride doesn't think that way, does it? No, pride fuels his overconfidence in himself and his own strength. And it results in his selective hearing and on it goes. By the way, let me remind you of another passage in Scripture, another story in Scripture. And, the, and I thought of, of several others and we don't have time to go through even as many as I wanted to share with you this morning. But do you remember with Adam and Eve in the garden? And Eve and the, the crafty servant comes along and says, wait a second, Eve, are you sure that's what God said? In other words, cast a little doubt here. Maybe you need to kind of rehear what you think he said, because I don't think you're really hearing what he said. He, he didn't say, you know, you shall die if you eat of the tree. That, that's not really what he was saying. In fact, Eve, what was really going on there and, of course, he's playing into her pride here. He knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't you know Eve's heart kind of perked up and said, wow, that really appeals to me. I like what I'm hearing. You know, I kind of like that interpretation of what God said. And in verse 6 of Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... 
and the tree was desirable to make one wise. By the way, there's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. What did she do? She took from its fruit and ate. Now think about this. There's the, the same thing, the predictable progression, like Peter. There was the selective hearing of the truth. In other words, she disregarded what God said and chose instead to hear what she wanted to hear. Ooh, I can be like God and, and I can know good from evil? Wow. And then there's the selective interpretation of the truth where pride says, well, I want to be like God. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I mean, really what I want is to know good from evil. Yes, that's, that's what I really want. Uh, plus the, the, this fruit, oh, it's just simply irresistible. And so ultimately, there becomes there, there, this leads to, I should say, a selective, uh, the selective interpretation of the truth leads to a settled conviction of a lie. She finally now rationalized all that was going on, and then she chooses to disobey God. And of course, in her mind, it's all justified. She chooses to disregard what he said, and in self-confidence in her own foolish choices, she buys the lie. And she sins against God. You can see the same progression in the story of David. In the second Samuel 12:9, the Lord confronted him through Nathan, and it says that the Lord God of Israel asked him, "Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in His sight?" Despised, he would have said to himself, oh, never, not, not me. I, I don't despise the word. But what, do, what did he do? The same thing we do very often. He chose to hear what he wanted to hear and kind of interpret it to fit his agenda so that he could satisfy the lust of his eyes, the lust of his flesh, and even his pride. And beloved, this is the same progression that, ply, that, that we see played out all through Scripture. In fact, Think of the admonitions, and I, I, wrote, I wrote down just a few, that we have all heard as Christians. And I'm not going to take time to give you kind of the subtle ways that people like to hear what they want to hear and interpret it the way they want to, to fit their agenda. But just think about these, these, these admonitions. Like, for example, um, God makes it clear, do not commit murder. All right. Well, what do we hear? Well, I'm not supposed to go out there and you know shoot somebody off the street. But 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 this baby that we're that, that I now have in in my womb, it's really an unwanted baby, and and we really can't afford it, and so I I, I think it's okay for abortion here. You see how quickly it works? Let me give you another one. Seek first the kingdom of God. Oh yes, amen to that. And boy, I'm going to do that by going to church most all the time. That's kind of the end of it. Flee from immorality. Oh, boy, I agree with that, too. I'm faithful to my wife, faithful to my husband. And down deep, your conscience is saying, what about the stuff that you watch on television? What about the stuff you look at on your Internet? What, what, what about the, the, the types of books you read? What about the type of music you listen to on the way to work? Oh, well, you know, those things don't, you know, that, that's a little bit different here. Come out and be separate from the world. Do not be bound to unbelievers. 
Forsake not the assembling together of the saints. Discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. Go and make disciples of all nations. Long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And on and on and on it goes. The word of the Lord, and yet we hear it, and because of our pride, we only hear what we want to hear. We reinterpret it to fit our agenda. We become locked into some lie, and as a result, we rob ourselves of all the things that God would have us have because of our obedience. Like Peter, we become confident in ourselves, certain of all of our, our silly justifications, confident in the flesh, and we disregard then the word of the Lord, even as David did. And then with a smile on our face, we devour some delicious lie. By the way, this is at the very heart of Paul's warning in 2 Timothy 4.3. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, again, wanting to hear, have somebody tell me what I want to hear, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Beloved, wherever and whenever we do this, we not only, we, we not only forfeit divine blessing, but we bring upon us the, the, the Father's chastening and we dishonor God. And, and I, I want to digress for just a moment to help you see something here. You see, sin dims our view of the glory of God. You must understand that. And God wants us to see His glory. He wants us to experience His glory. And think about this. Christ suffered to allow us to someday come into the very presence of His glory. He, Christ suffered to, to bring us to God. And, and because of the gospel of grace, we are, we are reconciled to Him, we have communion with Him, we have fellowship with Him, we, we, we know that we're going to have joy forevermore. We get samples of that even now in this, in this fallen world. And the sweet sorrow of repentance of sin really restores our fellowship with, with the lover of our souls so that we can behold His glory. And, and when we were given the gift of faith, even as I read earlier, we, we, we see the light of His resplendent glory in the face of Christ as it blazes forth in our hearts. In fact, that text says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I don't want you to forget, it was, it was the gospel that awakened our remorse for sin. It, it was the, the word of God that sanctified us and continues to sanctify us. And we are literally seeing the glory of Christ through the eyes of our heart. And, and here's the paradox of the Christian life. It's simply this. The more we sorrow over our sin, the more we behold His glory. You see that? The, the, the more we understand His Word, the more we delight in Him. The more we enjoy His presence, which is a foretaste of glory. The, the more we humbly depend upon Him and take Him at His Word, hear exactly what He says, and don't try to mix it up with some goofy stuff to fit our pride or fit our agenda. The more we do that, the more we experience His power. And the more faithful obedience that we have, the more joy that we have. So, folks, I ask you, 
Why on earth would we want to forfeit all of this through selective hearing and selective interpretation resulting in some subtle conviction of a lie? By the way, what I just said is why it is so important for us to constantly have at the forefront of our worship and every time we get together the the systematic verse by verse exposition of the word of God because when that happens lives are transformed we move from one level of glory to the next the word of God tells us and the word ravishes our affections so that we can see the glory of God, so that we can savor the glory of God, so that we can enjoy the glory of God, so that we can experience the glory of God, ultimately in Christ exalting worship. And again, I ask you, as I've asked myself, why would I want to forfeit any of that and embrace the fleeting pleasures of sin? Because when, when I ultimately embraced Christ, even as you did, we know according to Acts 26.18 that there was a turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And again, think about this. The, the very purpose of the gospel is to display the glory of Christ and to shame Satan. And yet, we come along with the power of the flesh because it's so strong, because of this of this weed of pride that needs no watering. We come along and we live lives of pride and we hear what we want to hear in Scripture and disregard what we don't want to hear and twist the truth and distort the truth and rob ourselves of all the glory that God wants us to see and experience and enjoy. Jonathan Edwards said, and I quote, All gracious affections that are as sweet odor to Christ and that fill the soul of a Christian with a heavenly sweetness and fragrancy are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. And their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy and leaves the Christian more poor in spirit and more like a little child and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. Now, see, this is precisely what the Lord was wanting to teach Peter and the disciples and all of us. By the way, this is why every week I plead with God that I might clearly understand the text of Scripture, that He is going to ask me to somehow exposit before you. And I plead with God that somehow you will hear it. Not hear what you think it says or what you want it to say, but you will hear it precisely and clearly. And then through the Word of God, and as the Scripture says, through the foolishness of preaching, somehow you will see and feel the full weight of the glory of God encompass your very soul. The great Puritan John Owen said, and I quote, If our future blessedness shall consist in being where He is and beholding of His glory, what better preparation can there be for it than in a constant previous contemplation of that glory in the revelation that is made in the gospel. 
uh, to this very end that by a view of it, we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. Isn't that an incredible thought? History, by the way, records a statement that John Owen made right before he died. A statement that he made to the editor of his last book that he was working on called The Meditations on the Glory of Christ. And here's what John Owen said. Oh, Brother Payne, the long-wished-for day is come at last in which I shall see the glory in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. But beloved, what a tragedy it is to allow allow our pride to disregard or distort a single word that God has given us as a preview of His glory. So Peter is about to learn a very hard lesson about his pride, the pride of overconfidence that predisposed him to selective hearing. And we also see the selective interpretation of the truth, the spinning to our liking. Look at verse 33. Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Now think about this. Jesus' words are plain. They are straightforward. Peter is unable to employ the the, the selective hearing here. There's no wiggle room, if you will. So if there's no wiggle room in selective hearing, you have to kind of employ this idea of selective interpretation of the truth. Here's how it goes. Well, I know what he said, but he doesn't really mean what he said. Oh, now why would you say that? Well, because what, what he said doesn't match what I believe. Oh, really? So in other words, help me understand here, his actual words are not what matters. Those actual words are somewhat arbitrary, somewhat subjective. What, what really matters is what you want him to say. Well, yes. Okay, so, so, so what is it that you believe that he's really saying that would somehow negate what he has said? Well, verse 35 answers that. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. You see how it works, folks? Instead of saying, yes, God, he says, yes, but. How often we do the same thing. Instead of saying, yes, God, we say, yes, but. By the way, I see this all the time in Scripture uh, with, with the way people interpret Scripture. The Scripture will clearly speak on a given issue. And the response will be, well, that's not really what it means. Oh, so in other words, help me understand here. Words have no meaning. Well, and on and on it goes. Let me give you an example. We read in the Genesis account of creation that God created everything in six days. Well, but everybody knows those weren't literal 24 hour periods of day. I mean, even though everywhere else in the Old Testament, when the term yom is used, it refers to a 24 hour period of day. But we know that it can't mean that because of evolutionary theory. Oh, really? In fact, what it really means is not a 24 hour period of time. It really means an age. Okay. We see this all the time in theological and eschatological debates where people give novel meanings 
to, to very clear words to make them mean something different so that they can somehow support some theological or eschatological system. I see this a lot in the, I want to call it the eclectic hermeneutics of covenant theology. I see this in the evangelical feminists as they object to the biblical theme of the headship and submission of, of, of uh, Christ and even the husband, uh, Christ with the church, husband and the family and so on, they would say that kafale, the Greek term for head, doesn't, doesn't mean anything with respect to um, authority or rule. It means source. Oh, is that what it means? Interesting. By the way, if you want to read a refutation of that, <laughs> Wayne Grudem uh, has, has studied over 2,500 uh, usages of that term in 41 ancient texts from both biblical and extra-biblical literature. And his study proves that that view is utterly ridiculous. It is utterly ridiculous. Well, why would people come up with that? Because of pride. Well, here we see the same pattern in Peter. In verse 31, Jesus even quotes the, the prophecy of Zechariah 13:7, a divine commentary here. He says, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Now, again, a humble heart would quickly respond, Lord, help me understand what this means and what should I do? Because here from Zechariah, we understand that, that it is God who is going to strike down the shepherd and then scatter the sheep. The sheep being the disciples who would be the representatives of, of Israel. They're all going to flee in fear. And then, of course, also in the text, Jesus encourages them concerning his resurrection, something that they had just witnessed with Lazarus. And they had heard Jesus say in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. But, folks, what's amazing to me is Peter hears none of this. He, he believes none of this. Worse yet, now catch this. They had all heard this before just a few hours earlier at the Last Supper. That's what's amazing. And in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus warned Peter saying this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you. By the way, by the, way the word you there in the Greek is in the plural. You don't see this in English. That's why Greek is so much more precise and God uses it to help us understand the, the precision of doctrine in the New Testament. But he's referring here to not just you, Peter, but to you, all of you disciples. So he says, uh, Satan has demanded perm permission to sift you. In other words, all of you to sift all of you like wheat. But he says, I have prayed for you. And here it's used in the singular. He must have looked over at Peter at that point. He says that your faith may not fail and you when once have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But, you know, again, even even then, Peter's pride prevented him from hearing the word of the Lord. It's as if he's saying, I refuse to hear that. You've got this one wrong. You underestimate my loyalty. I, I, I refuse to even hear such a statement. What you what you're really saying, Lord Jesus, is not what you really mean. And in response to that, the Lord says, or Peter said, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death, to which the Lord replied, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Now, 
it might be helpful for you to understand that the Jewish night was divided into four parts. First, there was evening, which was about six to nine. And then there was midnight that was about nine to twelve. And then there was what was called cock crow, which was twelve to three, because the roosters really would begin to crow sometime around three o'clock. And they would crow all through the, the, the fourth period of time, which would be called morning, which would be about three to six. And so since it was probably now about midnight, as uh, Jesus is here with the disciples, it was probably about midnight by the time they reached their destination up to, um, up to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is literally saying to them, guys, within a few hours, Peter, within a few hours, you're going to deny me. But his pride was so great, he, 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 he only heard what he wanted to hear and spin it to his advantage. So he became convinced of a lie. And the lie is kind of like this. The, the, the Lord is wrong. His word cannot be trusted. It, it means something other than what it says. By the way, you will recall earlier in Matthew 16, Peter didn't want to hear the, the, the word of the Lord when he was speaking about his suffering and his death because that didn't fit into Peter's agenda. He was looking for the kingdom and wanting a place to be great in the kingdom and all of this. So what does he do? The text says that he took the Lord aside and began to rebuke him. My, now that's real serious pride, isn't it? I love Peter because he's so much like me. And he's so much like you. He's saying, basically, here in this text, I'm superior to the other disciples. My, my strength of faith and loyalty is capable of withstanding any temptation, conquering any fear. And as a result, there's a settled conviction of a lie. Notice at the end of verse 25, it wasn't just Peter. It says all the disciples said the same thing. You see, in their own way, they had all fallen victim to their pride. After all, remember now, they, they had just been arguing once again about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And child of God, you must hear this. We must all be careful that we know precisely what God has said. And not do anything to selectively hear what we want to hear and reinterpret it. Scripture is clear. The glorious doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. It is absolutely precise and it is clear. In fact, I, I think of that text in, in Luke 16. Remember when Jesus rebuked the, the scoffing Pharisees um, who considered Jesus to be a lawbreaker and who disregarded the word and so on, to which Jesus replied, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. I mean, here is the stunning contrast. He's saying that the, the immensity of the universe couldn't pass away before one minuscule, minute aspect of the Word of God would ever pass away. He goes from the immense to the minuscule. The term that he uses there, by the way, is kariah, and it, it's, it's really referring to um, uh, the, a little horn, a little those of you that have studied Hebrew or, or Greek, you would understand this. The, the little minuscule horns that, that you have in a language, it would be tantamount to, to like our comma uh, or something like that. Or, or just one line, like if you take a capital F, if you add one more line, you've got a capital E. It's that last little line. That's what he's referring to here. It's the, the minuscule projections which uh, distinguish uh, different words. We used to say in seminary, if a fly were to land on a Hebrew text, it, 
and leave his little mark as they do. You've seen that. It could change the whole tense of a verb. That's what he's referring to, something that small. Folks, do you get the idea that the Lord is saying that my word is so true and it is so important to understand it precisely, it'd be easier for the entire universe to somehow disappear rather than for one Kariah to fail. Do you get the idea that God is serious about his word? That it is inspired right down to the details? This is why we study it slowly. How ridiculous this new hermeneutic that we hear, like, for example, in the emergent church. It's called the hermeneutics of humility. I'm I'm just too humble to say with any dogmatism what the word of God means because nobody really knows. How silly. Or the crystal cathedral position that says, we believe the message of the Bible is inspired, but not all the words. Oh, that's interesting. But before we laugh too quickly, here's what many of us will say. Yes, I believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. But most of it really isn't all that important. That's why I don't spend much time looking at it. That's why I selectively hear what I want to hear and interpret it to fit my own proud heart. Well, our time is gone, but I can't leave you in the darkness of all of the the disciples' deception. Folks, remember that later after the Lord's resurrection, he appeared to 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 these despairing cowards. You know, they really after a while, they after all of their denials and we'll study that more in days to come. they, They weren't as cocky anymore. All right. God just really humbled them in his mercy. And they had returned to their former career of fishing. And then there on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, suddenly At daybreak, they didn't realize who it was, but there standing on the beach was the Lord Jesus. And here's what he said. Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side, right hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Let me stop there. See what a test this was? Guys, I've told you before to listen to what I have to say. Do what I ask you to do. I'm going to give you a little test here. Are you going to hear my word now? Are you going to trust me to do something even though to obey me doesn't really make much sense? Well, they did. Verse 7 goes on to say, That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, referring to John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. It's like, well, who else could could have said that? It's got to be the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. You see how desperately Peter wanted to have a relationship with the Lord who was so gracious to once again invite him to himself. So Peter abandons ship and he swims to the shore. Verse 8 says that the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land. About 100 yards away, dragging the, the net full of fish. I think Peter wanted to get out of some of the work maybe there. And so when they got up upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed upon it and bread. And later on in verse 12, it says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Isn't that an amazing thought? I think here the one who had been violated now serves. The one being Peter, who had been proud, now humbly comes before his Lord. 
And I think of the charcoal fire. The last time Peter had been around charcoal fire, he had denied the Lord three times. Now he's around another charcoal fire. And if you read the rest of the story, the Lord will ask him if he loves him three times. And what's amazing is that later on, the Holy Spirit came upon these men at Pentecost and gave them supernatural power, ability to conquer their fears and to somehow live a heart of humility and to not only hear the word, but interpret it precisely because the resident truth teacher is there within them. And because of that, you see the glorious power and strength and joy of the glory of God refracting off of the lives of the disciples and every saint who humbles themselves before His Word. And that's why Peter would finally be able to say this right before his crucifixion, as he, his own crucifixion, as he was ministering to the persecuted saints. Listen to how God's humbling grace worked in his life. He says in Second Peter 1, beginning in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He's gonna, he knows about knowledge now, the true knowledge. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, apply all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. It's almost as if he's saying, folks, these are all the things that I've had to learn the hard way and that I still struggle with. He goes on, he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble It's almost as if he's saying, you won't stumble like I did so many times. I stumbled. I fell away from the Lord. You're not going to do that. And I won't do that if we do this, if we practice these things. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. May God add his blessing to his word and may we apply it to our hearts for our joy and for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we will all learn from Peter's pride and the pride of the disciples and how we thank You that You reduced all of that to humility and You continue to do that in our lives. Lord, may we as the disciples learn to hear what You have to say, to trust every word of it, and to depend upon You for every aspect of our life knowing that as we do that, we will never succumb to debilitating fear. We will never abandon You. We will never lose our salvation. We will never fall away. Thank You for the grace that is ours through Christ Jesus, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. 
You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.